this is the Commercial Property Show Australia. Show number 56. Avoiding setting up an additional trustee company or an entity on the side might save you a thousand dollar right now, but cost you millions and millions of dollars in tax if your project is successful. Hey, commercial property community, thank you for joining me once again today. My name is Andrew Bean, and we've got another great show for you lined up today with my personal accountant, Eric Flamang. So here it is. Highly experienced property accountant, Eric Flamang, my personal accountant, is on the show today. He explains why setting up the right structure from the start can save you millions. Like if you're cheaping out and choosing not to create an extra entity to save yourself $1,000 right now, you could literally be costing yourself millions of dollars in taxes down the line. So Eric and I have a really in-depth chat about this. He goes through, you know, the different types of entities that you could potentially use for the different type of project you're doing. Like there's a very, very big difference whether you're doing it for profit or you're doing it for returns. And he goes through that in depth. So I hope you guys enjoy this uh, interview. It's always really fun to chat with Eric about this stuff. So I hope you like it. But first... If you guys are struggling to run the numbers on commercial property or worried about, you know, is this deal going to stack up because of rising interest rates and inflation, or, you know, you're trying to figure out how much value you can add to your commercial property, I've created a free resource on my new website at www.andrewbean.com.au. It's the free DIY cash flow kit, totally free comes with three spreadsheets to give you the ability to be able to run the numbers on commercial property easily without any mistakes. I also created the inflation risk analyzer. So you put in all of your details of your investment and it will show you how high your interest rates will have to go up for you to be underwater. Trust me, this is something that you need to be double checking before you invest in a property. So this gives you the insight to be able to check how high interest rates can go before you would actually be underwater and it will be a negatively geared investment, which is not what we wanna be doing in commercial property. The last spreadsheet is a value add calculator. This gives you the opportunity to be able to calculate how much increased equity you can have on the property by forcing value, by forcing income onto the property. This is a really cool spreadsheet because it gives you exactly to the dollar how much extra value you can add to the property. I designed these free spreadsheets to be really, really easy for everyone to be able to use. And it's my gift to you guys for being such awesome listeners and making this show so huge. So go to www.andrewbean.com.au. Download the free DIY cash flow kit today and start running numbers on commercial property like a pro. All right, let's get to the show. My next guest is a business advisor and chartered accountant. It's Eric Flamang. How are you doing, mate? 
I'm good, Andrew. Thanks for having me. You are very welcome, mate. So for the listeners who don't know Eric, Eric is actually my accountant and he represents a firm called William Buck on the Gold Coast. Eric, can you just share a little bit about your background in accounting and what you've done in property and property development? Sure. People need to know, talking about my background, where that huge accent comes from. So, you know, they're prepared for the rest of the podcast. I'm originally French, a bit of a star here. That's the way I speak. I came here when I was 18 and to be honest, I've pretty much been working in the accounting industry since then. I've been working with property development projects and investors for about 15 years. I've worked in many different industries, the medical industry, mining, but property development you'll find is something that pretty much every accountant has to touch on and I'm not going to say specializing, but know about because that's pretty much the bread and butter of our nation. That's our growing industry and property developers. But, you know, we've other clients in the industry that wish to invest their money a bit smartly and make sure that they're getting good returns. So that's basically it. And obviously, I've got the best client of them all because you're on my client list, Andrew. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. Awesome, mate. So I've asked you here today to talk about trust structures and companies. And basically how we should be setting up these entities for or like the different types of commercial acquisitions. Yeah. So, mate, do you have a disclaimer that you'd like to say first? <laughs> yes. And you and I, Andrew, have gone through this. And, and that disclaimer is pretty much a disclaimer that I start all my meetings with in the sense that, well, we can talk about what trusts are and different structures and tax implications of getting into a structure. It's really important to understand that it's never going to be a one size fits sort of answer. There are huge differences based on personal circumstances, based on contingent things that can happen in the future. The important thing when choosing a structure is understanding that you really need to get advice. You can come up with right now could be as simple as setting up a company or one trust But at the end of the day, there's a few different things to consider, like asset protection, the taxation implications, the risk exposure, all of that. Unfortunately, there's no one ultimate structure, not one ultimate sort of entity that you need to establish to make sure that you tick all the boxes there. It's always going to be a trade-off. It's black and white. There's never going to be the perfect structure, but there's going to be what is the optimum structure for you and your personal circumstances. So we're going to be talking about today is going to be very generic, probably going to point you and your listeners in a few different directions that might be relevant for you and things to consider when you talk to your specific advisors. But at the end of the day, obviously, you really need to sit down, review that structure, get advice. And, you know, most of the time, a structure that you come up with right now, Andrew, is never going to be the same structure for the next project or things might change in your life and you actually need to look at that structure again. So that's my big disclaimer about today. Life is not black or white. It's great. Get advice. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So we got the legal stuff out of the way. Perfect. All right, mate. So can you just explain what a trust is? You know, that's a French guy in me speaking here. It's a British concept, a commonwealth concept. And that's something that you will find when you start dealing internationally that there's only a few jurisdictions that do recognize trusts. Obviously, Australia is one of them because we are a commonwealth country, which is based on a common law system. 
But basically what a trust is, and to answer your question, a trust is actually not a legal entity per se. So legally, a trust doesn't exist. It's trustee does. So when a trust buys assets, the entity that's showing as owning the title on that asset is its trustee. And we'll come back and I'm sure you're going to ask me what a trustee is and what type of trustees you can have. But legally, a trust cannot own assets. Its trustee does. What a trust, however, does, it gives beneficial ownership to its beneficiaries and the beneficiaries can be different from the legal owner. So that is, I can own an asset in trust for you, Andrew, but you can get the returns for that asset. So I can be the legal owner with all the risks that are associated with owning the assets and you could be the one getting beneficial ownership, getting the returns, the profits out of that asset. So that's what a trust relationship is. And that's probably why not all jurisdictions use it, because that's actually a very powerful tool in our system, being able to shift the risk of owning an asset versus the benefits of getting the returns on that asset. It's a very common law, commonwealth sort of structure that you can't find everywhere. So in a sense, that's what a trust is. It's a vehicle that allows a different person to own the asset from the people that benefit from it. All right. So can you just explain to us the relationship between the trust and the trustee there? So the trustee is the actual ownership. That's right. Yes. So a trustee, as I said, is the legal owner. So it owns the asset. And for every trust, you need to nominate who your beneficiaries are. And we'll talk about the different types of trusts because those can be fixed. They can be discretionary. You can have a different beneficial owner, so beneficiary, than your legal owner, the trustee. And then the trustee can be any type of entity. You can be an individual trustee. You can be two, three, four, five individual trustees. You can have a company as a trustee as well. And all of that has different legal implications, which we should probably talk to a lawyer about. But usually in the industry, we would use a company over individual trustees simply because it gives you more asset protection. So if something goes wrong with the trust and if you want the asset in the trust and someone sues us, it will never sue the trust because of that reason. The the trust is not a legal entity. It cannot be sued. So it will sue its trustee. If you are sued as an individual person or as an individual trustee, all your personal assets that you own are at risk where if you get sued through a company and the only relationship that you have with that company is that you're the director, so you still have control over it, but your personal asset as a director are not really at risk. They're only at risk in circumstances which, you know, would be applicable for trading companies, not trustee companies. So that is the only reason why you would put a trustee company instead of an individual as a trustee of a trust because it limits your personal liability. It's usually a setup that is more expensive. You would know that, Andrew, you and I had the conversation but it will give you more peace of mind. So setting up a company on top of a trust costs you more than just you acting personally as a trustee of that trust. You already exist. There's no setup costs in that. 
And so in terms of like a, a trustee and a corporate trustee, what's the difference there? If you put a corporate trustee, a company, that's exactly the same thing. A corporate trustee is a company. You are limiting your personal liability to whatever assets are owned by that company. Usually would use a trustee company or a corporate trustee, as you're referring to, that has nothing in it. It's just a company that we establish just for that purpose that has nothing in it, no assets, no liabilities that can be put at risk in the event of you being taken to court or any other claims. I guess in the lingo, so a trustee could be just you or a company, but if it was actually a company, it is called a corporate trustee. That's correct, yes. Interesting. So do all trusts then need a trustee named or listed as well? Yes, yes. So part of establishing a trust means that you need to have a few things. You need to have an appointer and or a settler. So that's the person, usually accountant or lawyer, that will be here and legally sign off on the establishment. That person also has the right and the deed to remove or replace a trustee. So depending on what type of trust you're talking about here. So that's usually how you set up. When you start setting up a trust, you you start with the appointer and the settler. Then what you need to do is to decide who will be the trustee. So the legal representative of the trust. You always need to either choose an individual, two, three, four, five, or eventually a corporate trustee if you decide to go down that path. You then also need to define who your beneficiaries are. So those three things and appointing a trustee is one of them. And is it easy to switch out the trustee? What's the process there? It really depends what type of trust you're dealing with. And I think we should probably talk about the different types of trusts that are out there. But most of the time, any entity that you set up, trust has a document, basically say these are the rules to establish and then maintain or terminate the trust. So they are usually in every trust deed and the deed is that legal instrument that rules what the trustee's obligations are and how the trust needs to function has a clause that allow a trustee to be changed. Usually that's very easy. You need to be careful because changing a trustee may have legal and tax implications. I would not change a trustee without getting legal and accounting advice. But to answer your question very easily, yes, it is more than possible. And it is something that we frequently do as well. It's a common kind of way to have asset protection is using your spouse's name instead of yours. A lot of big developers do do that to try and mitigate their risk. Is that ever advisable, Eric? (laughs) Well, Andrew, (laughs) I don't know if I can say that's advisable. I can see why people would do this simply because let's say husband and wife, let's swap it around because, you know, I'm all about gender equality, but let's say the wife is a big income earner and she wants to spend that income that she's earned and uh, invested in a property development project. The easiest thing for her to do to make sure that her own assets are not at risk. Remember, she's a high income earner and she's already got a lot of assets under her name. So if there's something going wrong with the project, then she will be sued if she's the individual trustee. If, however, the husband doesn't have any assets under their name, et cetera, et cetera, then it's less risky to put them as a trustee because if the trust gets sued, remember, it's not the trust that gets sued, it's going to be the husband. If the husband gets sued and there is a claim, that claim will be limited to the assets of the husband. 
this is a bit more complicated than that, Andrew. Really, there are laws and legislation that allow, in the event of the seriousness of a crime, to go above and beyond the assets of the husband. So usually what we would do here is, rather than using the husband, do not go cheap on the establishment and put a corporate trustee in there. That provides you with probably the same, if not better, asset protection. Because things can change. The husband may get an inheritance down the track or something like this, which means that suddenly we're putting more assets at risk if we have that structure. The other consideration, and I always mention that consideration to all my clients, is that you may be in a happy marriage right now. You may not be in five or 10 years' time. (laughs) So giving control of your property development project to protect you right now may not protect you in the future if you follow my dream. Yeah, fair enough. All right, mate. Well, I think it's time to talk about the different types of trust. So what are the actual different types of trust that we can actually set up? There are many types of trusts, Andrew. There's about nine or ten. I think if we go on the ATO website, there are a few on there that I, I personally even even have heard of. There's probably three types of trusts that we would use most of the time. So there are trusts out there that you can set up for a special purpose, like testamentary trusts, which basically something that you tag to your will and will allow you and your executor after your death to take care of your dependents or beneficiaries and things like that. There's a special disability trust if you've got people, dependents that are impaired and you can put money aside and all these trusts have sort of a different taxation rates or thresholds or advantages in there. At the end of the day, what we use in the property development world, and I can talk about different types of trusts for hours, but I'd like to concentrate on three main ones. A discretionary trust, unit fixed trusts, and something that's in between called an hybrid trust. Discretionary trust is probably what's used most of the time, simply because a discretionary trust, and remember what I said to you, every trust needs to have beneficiaries. And maybe I need to step back to explain to you the differences between those three mainstream trusts. Most of it has to do with how you pull your assets, share the profits, and get taxed on them. A trust works a bit like a seed. A trust is not a legal entity, and I've made that clear. From a tax point of view, it's also not a tax-paying entity. So a trust still needs to lodge a tax return, but never pays tax or would only pay tax in circumstances, which we generally avoid because it's not tax advantages. But really, a trust, the income comes in, so you get returns, you buy an asset, you get returns out of that asset. The returns come in the trust, and at the end of the year, by 30 June, the trustee must have made a beneficiary entitled of all that trust income, That's depending on what type of trust you have. So a discretionary trust give, as its name would say, discretion to the trustee to choose who and in what proportion the beneficiaries of the trust will get income. So usually a normal discretionary trust deed would limit primary beneficiary being, for example, you, Andrew, secondary beneficiaries being your spouses and children. Other third or class of beneficiaries would be any entities related to you, grandchildren, possibly siblings. Most of the time that is used in a family concept. There are some more elections that we can do with discretionary trust to give us more tax advantages. 
I won't go too much in the detail there, but that is mainly the reason why we would use discretionary trust because you have the discretion. You can distribute differently every year and it is fine to then distribute to the beneficiaries, make the most sense to distribute to. So for example, because we were able to reduce the tax that we'd be paying on those profits or because we're able to, I don't know, reinvest these profits in, in a different manner. So a discretionary trust gives us a lot of flexibility. And that's most of the time very fine when we have a family project or a project that we're running on our own. The other type of trust is a fixed trust or unit trust, which in a way works a bit like a company and works better when you've got unrelated investors pulling their finances and expertise to come up and run a project because a unit trust and a fixed trust actually gives you a fixed entitlement to that profit. Unlike a discretionary trust, you have to follow whatever equity we have in the project. So let's say you and I, go tomorrow and buy land and want to develop it over the next two, three years, Andrew, we would choose probably more likely a unit trust to do that. And if understanding in our arrangement slash agreement is that we share the profit 50-50 and we finance the project 50-50, then we would issue units. So usually that's called a unit trust which is the equivalent of a share in a company, if you think about it. So we would set up a unit trust with 100 units and you and I would get 50 units each, which means that every year, whoever the trustee of our trustee is probably a company that we would both have set up with both of us as directors, this trustee would then basically have to distribute the profits 50-50 to us. That's also a good way to not have a company, but yet have a trust that almost works like a company. And I come back because you'll probably will say, but Eric, well, then if you have a unit trust, why don't you use a company? I think we'll come back to that concept because that's a very important one. But then sometimes, which brings me to the third type of trust, Andrew, sometimes projects are a bit more complicated and we want a bit of both. We want flexibility of portion of our profits, but we still want discretion on another type of profit. Sometimes we can create what we call hybrid trusts, which have a bit of both. So we can issue some sort of class of units and we could issue different classes of units if we needed to maybe change that distribution a little bit around because I don't know, the project may be twofold. Well, let's build 50 units together, but we know that on the land there is also, let's say, a childcare centre that I know you have the expertise to run and therefore you will be running that centre and you should be entitled to more profits on that part of the project. So we're able to then, if you want, customize that trust and its deed to fit our purpose. That's really the three main trusts I would use. There's probably a fourth one that I should probably mention, but is also a very specific one. Do you know, Andrew, that a superannuation fund, like a self-managed super fund, is also a type of trust? Yes, I did know that. And do you know that you can, if you wanted to, run a project or buy an investment, and obviously that rules around the CSAC, the Suproning M, is where obviously you're limited in what you can do in a super fund. But most of the time, people forget that they can also use a super fund. And sometimes it makes sense to do that. Now, I'm not going to say more about this in the context of that podcast, because as soon as you involve your superannuation fund, you need to get financial advice. And yep. I'm not a licensed financial planner. But obviously, my message here is that, yes, it is a trust. In some instances, that can also be used as a structure. 
when you're investing in, yeah, that's a bear trust that you're using in that fund though, isn't it? If you don't need to finance the project. So let's say you and I have a million each in both of our super funds. Yes, Andrew, we've done well. We want to pull these funds together to buy that same piece of land I said together. So we could have a partnership of our super funds doing this. And because we've got a million dollar each, we've got more than enough to invest in the land. So we don't need to go and get finance from a bank. When you do, however, need to get financing from a bank, with Superannuation Fund, it's done on a, on a very different type of finance, which requires a very specific structure. And most of the time, that's called a limited recourse borrowing arrangement. I'm sure you would have read or heard the term before. And basically what that is, is because the CIS Act, so that act that regulates the super funds quite heavily, does not really allow you to get finance or to put your retirement asset at risk and therefore provide security to the bank if you're getting finance over other superannuation assets that you have and that you have accumulated for the benefit of your retirement, the legislation doesn't allow you to do that. It's too risky. What happens and what the banks usually require is that you hold the asset in a bear trust. And what a bear trust is, is basically it's a blank shell that's holding the asset in a separate entity that your superannuation fund, in case you can't meet repayments, the bank is allowed to pretty much acquire that asset to make up for the shortfall. In saying that, Usually, the bear trust is a bit like what I was saying before, trustee versus beneficial ownership. You do have a bear trust. The asset is in the name of that bear trustee, but still the beneficial owner of this is your SMS. It's your superannuation fund. So all the profits and all of that will come in your super fund, be concessionally taxed. That's a very sort of high-level advanced sort of structure mechanism. And if you do need that setup, which can be really good in your circumstances, you really need also to sit down, get financial advice, get accounting advice, and obviously work with your bank to see if they would be willing to lo- to lend the money on those conditions. But yeah, that's not, their trust in an SMSF is not required if you don't need to finance the project. Interesting. So I just wanted to recap, the discretionary trust is like a family trust where it gives you the discretion to actually put the funds or move the funds around between the actual beneficiaries of that trust. That's right. A fixed unit or a unit trust is something that we'd use more like in a, a group deal or a syndication or something like that with parties that are unknown to you. Like you yeah. might have investors that you are bringing into the deal, but they're not directly related. So you have a fixed share of that unit trust. Yeah. And then is the term, was it ivory or ivory? Hybrid as in, uh, you know, you've got an hybrid car that can do uh, fuel and electricity. That's an hybrid. You can oh, have an hybrid like trust, hi- which <laughs> hybrid, sorry. Sorry, you hybrid. can hear the H. <laughs> yeah, hybrid. I thought you said ivory, but it's hybrid trust. So a hybrid trust is something where you can basically kind of like have a preferred or a different level of shareholding for different members of that trust. Is that correct? That's correct. So you can have a discretionary and a fixed beneficial ownership within the same trust structure. Correct. Yes. Awesome. Hey team, just a quick one. I'm not really big at asking for this kind of stuff and I haven't done it much in the past, but 
If you are a return listener to this podcast and this content has helped you out in any way, it would be absolutely amazing if you could leave me a quick rating and review. It only takes a minute and it helps me out heaps. It's a very small ask and it would make me love you long time. All right, back to the podcast. So, mate, what about buying a a property in a company's name? When is that something that you would potentially do and, and why would that benefit or, you know, disadvantage you? So it's a very important concept, and that's probably when we talked about structuring in the context of property development, it's really important to understand how is your project going to be taxed. And there's basically two ways your project can be taxed. It can be taxed like a business profit, basically, you know, whatever you're making, less the cost that you're incurred is basically your business profit and you need to be taxed on that. So that's what we usually call on revenue account in the jargon. I'm sure your accountant would have mentioned that to you before. Now, the other way is to acquire it on capital account, which means you're not making a profit, you're making a capital gain when you do sell the property in question down the track. And that's very relevant, whether it's on revenue or capital account, for many different reasons, because capital gain tax, while it is income tax, is managed in and referenced in another section of the Tax Act, which means that there are different concessions for capital gains than there are for business profits. So, for example, when we're in business, especially with the COVID measures, we've got accelerated depreciations and things like that to give us more tax deductions when we're in a small business. When we're dealing with capital gain tax, there are other concessions like You would know, Andrew, the 50% general CGT discount if you've held the asset for more than 12 months. So basically here, if I buy an asset for 100,000 and I sell it 12 months and one day after I bought it for $200,000, my capital gain is $100,000. Because I held it for 12 months, I'm only going to be taxed on $50,000. So depending on what your numbers are, what your circumstances are, who your beneficiaries of your trust are, if you hold the project in trust, you may want traded on capital or revenue account because it might give you a different tax advantage. Now, I am not saying one is better than the other. Again, it depends on your circumstances. At the end of the day, it's not an option that you can make. Whether you hold the property development project on capital or revenue account is what your initial intentions are when you set up the structure and buy the asset, et cetera, et cetera. So if your intention is to develop it and sell it, that's definitely a business undertaking. So it will be on revenue account that you're in the business of, of developing properties. If, however, I'm buying land and my original intention is to hold it and potentially sell it down the track at a higher price, or let's say I'll just buy an established building and my original intention is to rent it out and maybe sell it down the track. Well, that's definitely I want to hold and get return out of my investment. So you hold it on a capital account. So you see one is you have an investment. The other one, you almost have inventory. You've got stock. You're going to have to to sell it within your business undertakings. So your original intention is always what, what's going to tell your accountant how to treat and what tax concessions to apply to the project when you're selling it off down the track and making profits. 
this is probably my biggest advice to everybody is really consider this at the very beginning when you are looking at structures. If you're not too sure, most of the time, the reality of life, Andrew, is is that, well, I don't know what the market's going to do. So I may hold it. I may rent it down the track. Well, it's important then to have a structure that allows you to get that flexibility and that option. And that's why you need to get advice, I guess, because that's probably the most complicated structures to get. Documenting your initial intention is also very important because when it comes to ATO audits, now that we have seen a lot of that William Buck, because we know what we do, we do get clients from other accounting firms joining us. And we have seen most of the time, the ATO would say, oh, well, you have sold that, that asset and you were only assessed on half of the profits because you treated it as a capital gain. Well, we don't believe you. We can see that you held for the property for a, a year and a half. You've never rented or advertised anything. You obviously wanted to make a a profit from the very beginning. The onus is going to be on you to prove what your initial intention is. And we all change intention. The market changes all the time. So if we have something to prove, a bit like I always say sometimes is what I say to my clients is send me an email to recap what you've just said to me and what your intention is with the project. And we'll be able to use that if you knocks at our door and say, no, we don't believe this was your initial intention. So here again, that's probably why that's important to make that difference because that then answers your second question, which was, Eric, when do I use a, a trust versus using a company? Why would I use a company? Well, it's important to know that companies do not get that many, but in that instance, that capital gain tax concessions that I was talking about, the 50% general CGT discount. If you buy an asset, and let's say even if you buy it on capital, so that is your intention is to hold onto it and get returns, not to develop it and sell it. Even if it's on capital account, the company is not eligible for that 50% CGT concessions. It's only trusts and individuals that can have that concession, that can benefit from that concession. So obviously, you can imagine that if you use a company and your initial intention is to get returns, you may actually be paying more tax because you're paying tax on the full difference between you bought the asset for and what you're selling it, where if you had done that in a trust, you would only have about 50% of that margin that would have been assessed for tax purposes. So that's the main difference. However, when you are on revenue account, you're in business, you're holding your investment as trading stock, as inventory, well, then it probably makes more sense to do it through a company. You wouldn't benefit from the CGT discount. So here it's probably more from a tax measure. A trust plus trustee company costs me more to set up than a company on its own. So that's probably why we would say, well, if you're not getting any tax benefit out of operating through a trust because of your initial intention, we might as well do it in a company from the very beginning. Does that make sense? It does make sense, but I just kind of wanted to clarify to make sure that the listeners understand. When I mentioned profit, so let's talk about two different terms here. You either buy a property as an investment to make returns, or you buy it as stock, like you would in a business. If I was in business of selling socks, I would buy my socks and then would unsell it to the market at a markup. So that's me being in business. If I buy a sock and I know that SOC will appreciate in value in the future. And my only intention to buy that SOC is to hold on to it and sell it five years down the track when it's going to be a vintage stock and make a gain out of it. 
that's two different things. In a way, we are making a profit, but let's use for an investment, we are making returns. For trading stock within my business, I am making a profit. So if your intention is to make a profit, not to get returns out of the assets, a company, if it's returns that you are seeking and it's just an investment, then a trust. Because capital gains is a different concept than you know profit from business profit. So, I mean, my understanding is that a trust is eligible for the 50% capital gains tax concession and a yeah. business is not. Correct, yes. Well, a company yeah. is not. You can have a business in both a trust and a company, yeah. So, really, that's the idea. If you're holding the asset as an investment, it's a capital gain. If you're not holding it as an investment, you've got a view to make a profit and therefore you're not going to have any CGT concessions. You might as well then use a company. Perfect. So, mate, so how would you suggest that we structure a an acquisition of a, a buy and hold commercial property that an investor is going to buy? So buy and hold. Yeah, uh, buy and hold and, for a return of, say, a 6% yield. So here again, so we would buy it as an investment because we want to hold and yield returns. So you've used exactly the right terminology that I usually use to make a difference between the two. In that case, it will be in a trust because those returns, so once you, you know, you sell the building six years down the track, as you said, and you make a million dollar capital gain, because you've held for that asset for more than 12 months, you would only be assessed on half a million, not on the whole million dollars. So you can imagine what a difference in the bottom line that can make. And so would you suggest a discretionary trust or a unit trust? And I think I already know the answer just for the <laughs> listeners. I'm pretty sure, Andrew, you know the answer is going to be it depends. It depends if you, I would say, Andrew, if you say to me you're buying it on your own, I would advise a discretionary trust simply because you're going to be the only trustee and you're going to be choosing who that income goes to. I'm sure you're not going to send it to someone that does not deserve it. You're going to keep it within your your family. So at least that's going to give us option to, you know, one year I can distribute the profit to your spouse. Another year I could create potentially a company that could be a new beneficiaries and that company will then fund the next project. So usually we look at it like this. We would rather a discretionary trust and a family discretionary trust in your instance if this is your own undertaking with your personal wealth. Mindset would be different if you're coming in with unrelated parties and investors with you. Perfect. So the term a going concern gets put in listings sometimes for commercial property. Can you just explain what a going concern is and what makes it a going concern? Legislation is written up and we've got a few different acts. So I can see two main acts that would refer to the word and the concept going concern. One is for GST purposes and the other one is from a liquidity business purpose, which I think your question is probably more about the GST treatment. But in legal terms, when we talk about a going concern, it's basically a business that's able to pay its debt and creditors when they fold you. That's a business that's basically is healthy and is not going down. So when we talk about a going concern business, is that is that a business that is sustainable? That's often how I look at it. But when you look at contracts in terms of property development, it often refers to going concern, especially for commercial properties. And it's a question of GST because there are rules out there that allow for a 
commercial property transfer between one owner to the other to be GST free. Because remember, if you do sell commercial premises to someone and or new residential premises to someone, I'm not going to get there, but you have to charge GST, except for when you have a going concern. And what a going concern means in that instance, it basically means that this is not only a commercial building that you're selling on its own. You're selling the commercial building and the business that goes with it. You've got all the things necessary that you are passing on to the new owner, which is not only the building, but a leasing place with a tenant. And obviously there are other eligibility criteria in the sense that all have to be registered, et cetera, et cetera. So what a going concern is, is you're not only selling a building, you're selling a building with a leasing place. In that case, it's no longer the sale of a building, it's sale of a business. And therefore it is GST free. Yes. So, I mean, the commercial property is looked at like a business. The business of it is collecting rent with that lease, signed lease in place. Correct. And so how long does that lease have to be executed before the sale? Does it matter how long the lease is? Is there any kind of scrutiny on that? No, I don't believe so. I believe the wording of the legislation says there needs to be a lease in place on signing of the contract. As long as there is a valid lease in place, And obviously, you've got to be careful. There's all the legislations that carve out manufactured arrangements. So I've seen many instances where we are trying to put a a fictitious lease in place with the previous owner because, oh, well, no, that building was untenanted for the last six months. So I can't say that a going concern. Oh, how about I set up a lease just before selling it? And that gets me out of paying GST. No, that's not the right thing. But as long as we can prove that's a reasonable lease and that's on arm's length arrangement, arm's length considerations, so you wouldn't have a problem. No, there wouldn't be any GST applicable to that transaction. But I could also say that, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, that the lease arrangement just before the settlement does happen to avoid GST. Not that you should do that, but Mm -hmm. it does happen, (laughs) maybe. It may have happened. The question is the probability of the transaction being caught. At the end of the day, all of this needs to be disclosed in contracts that lodge with the title's office. And I always say, Andrew, because something hasn't happened in the past, it may certainly happen in the future, especially considering quantum computing and the amount of data matching that's happening right now. You will find that as we're moving to and in digital contracts and you know having all our government bodies talking to each other, the OSR and the titles office and the ATO will speak at one point in time and will realize whether a lease was in place or not genuinely before the transaction. So technically and practically, I am sure this is happening. I am certainly not saying this is a thing to do. <laughs> All right, mate. Well, I think that kind of wraps up our whole kind of talk around trust and trust structures. It's a very, very interesting and somewhat can be very complicated topic, especially when you start putting all these different types of ownerships, corporate trustees, trust this, company buying this for shareholders, and it can get very, very complicated. If you do need help, where can they go out to reach you, Eric? Where can they find out more about you? If you type my name, Eric Flamang at William Boak, I'm sure you will see it on Google. Andrew, I will give you my details that I'm sure you can share on your little portal. My mobile number, and I'm happy to give it away to all your listeners so they can reach out to me. I'm always happy to speak to everybody for half an hour and see if I can help them and work with them. 
what I see a lot in property development projects is people trying to do it cheap at the beginning and rush into it because obviously they don't want to miss out on the deal. It's very commercial and it's getting harder and harder to secure a deal right now because it's all a question of supply and demand. You would know that, Andrew. My biggest thing is don't go cheap at the beginning. Avoiding setting up an additional trustee company or an entity on the side might save you $1,000 right now, but cost you millions and millions of dollars in tax if your project is successful. And I am sure that we all enter projects and want to go into property development arrangements with other investors in view of making good money and not failing. So I would always bear that in mind when setting up a structure. Don't go cheap. Get the right advice. So my mobile number, Andrew, is 0424-287670. I'll be very happy to speak to your listeners. Definitely good advice there, mate. All right. Well, today's guest has been Eric Flamang. Cheers, mate. You're very welcome, Andrew. Cheers. That brings us to the end of the show. I'd like to thank my guest today and Kevin McLeod for the music. And remember, in the words of Grant Cardone, success is your duty, obligation, and responsibility. I'm Andrew Bean, signing off. This has been a Developer Life production.